You know the adage that truth hurts. You've probably said it. Truth hurts. Typically, we say it when we're confronted by something that we would rather not hear, something about ourselves that we don't like. Nobody likes the experience of realizing you're a gossip or you're deeply selfish or that you tend to twist the facts to make you feel better or look better. The truth hurts. This is one of the reasons that the first year of marriage is often such a difficulty because suddenly your spouse is right there with you all the time and like a mirror beginning to confront you with all sorts of character flaws that you've been able to justify for a long time. We don't like being found out, right? We would rather keep it hidden. That's an age-old human trait. We'd rather keep it hidden. It goes back to the garden. Keep it hidden in the Garden of Eden. Truth-denying became intimately connected with being a human. And we've all participated in it. Truth-denying. We've preferred falsehood to truth. We've rejected the truth of God's ownership, of God's rights to everything he has made, ourselves included. And we've spun a yarn. That's a Tennessee way of saying, telling a tall tale. We've spun a yarn that each one of us is the ruler of his own life. That each one of us is the one who controls his life or her life. The love of self and the myth of autonomy. It's a great comfort, isn't it? No, I actually am in control. It's going to be fine because I'm in control. I'm in control. It is a comfort to us in the midst of the actual state of affairs, the truth, which is that we are dying. You're dying. Today you're dying. I am dying. And there is nothing we can do about it. We're moving steadily breath by breath, towards our death. So as we sit here on this beautiful spring morning with cold, beautiful, we're dying. Sorry, like I said, we don't like the truth. We don't like it. And because of that inescapable reality, which our every ache and pain reminds us of, you would think that the words of Jesus, the deeds of Jesus, that his death and his resurrection would be understood by everyone as the greatest news that they are. Death is defeated. Surely that's great news. Let me be more specific. You would think that given the state of a typical human life, could be your life, could be your friend's life, that we would all be really glad to discover that we don't have to live like we live. We don't have to live with hatred or contempt or hostility towards other people. We don't have to scrounge in competition for resources with other people. To scrounge in competition for honor or for business that we feel is in short supply. Honor always feels in short supply, 
If someone else gets it, I'm diminished. We don't have to self-promote. We don't have to worry about our reputation. We don't have to look out of the corners of our eyes. We don't have to hide the fact of our failings and our sin. And we don't have to fear death. The good news is that we're offered peaceful confidence. We're offered security in who we are. We don't have to cling to money. Believe it or not, we can be content, truly content with almost nothing. I am so grateful for the fellowship, deep and true fellowship we have with the global church that serves as a prophetic mirror to us, telling us day by day, one can be content with almost nothing. Praise the Lord for that. The good news is that everything that truly matters is given to us. And there is a whole different way of life made open to us because Christ has died and Christ has risen, defeating death. And yet it remains for many, including Christians in some significant ways, that this good news is not good news. Somehow isn't good news. The aroma of life is received as the aroma of death. Or another way of saying this is that despite being given life, and being offered the way of peace, we prefer to cling to perishing things. We prefer to hold fast to dying things. That truth was apparent on the very day of the resurrection that we re recall today. There are four different groups who were made witnesses of the resurrection in different ways. And each of them attempts to hold on to their personal perishing visions. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, the first about 18 verses. These four groups, with them, each of them attempts to hold to this, their personal perishing vision. We see a group of women disciples who are the first to the tomb. We see the apostles. There are Roman guards. I'm going to refer to, they're not mentioned in John's account. And there are the Jewish leaders, also uh, for Matthew and Mark's account. But first, the group of women. There are several Marys. Don't try to keep them straight. Uh, there's Joanna. There's Salome, sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And these women come early to the tomb. And at the tomb, they're met by an angel who announces to them that the one they are looking for isn't there. He's risen. And as they're hearing this, the Roman guards are there, stricken dumb, stricken with terror, standing astonished at the appearance of these angels and the removal of the rock that, that covered the tomb. The women are told by those angels to go back and tell the disciples and so they become the first witnesses to the resurrection. These, this group of women become apostles to the apostles. 
And then look, while the group, they go back to the apostles, uh, the group doesn't believe the women. John tells us that he, he's the disciple Jesus loved, he and Peter ran to the tomb. John throws it out there. The younger guy, the quicker guy got there first, (laughs) but didn't go in. Uh, Mary Magdalene, who was the only young one of that group of women, also runs back, because they had run back to tell the disciples. They're tired. Mary Magdalene is able to book it back. She runs. There's lots of running on on this morning. Each of the the, uh, Gospels talks about haste and running. It's really the, the only place where you see these outside of a parable where people are running. They check out the tomb. They see the burial cloths lying there. Uh, one of them folded neatly, and then they head back. Mary lingers outside the tomb. We heard this, verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Woman, why are you weeping? She answered, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Look at that. Despite the moved stone, despite the angel's dawn announcement, the narrative of death's power, the the narrative of the inevitability and inescapability of death is stronger than her hope. Despite the announcement, despite the empty tomb, death is still bigger than hope for her. Then she turns and sees Jesus, but as John tells us in verse 14, she did not know that it was Jesus, supposing him to be the the groundskeeper, the gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. She's looking for a dead body. She's heard an announcement. She's seen the angels, and she's looking for a dead body. That is strong death. The death is so big that it can overwhelm even that kind of evidence. Even in his presence, as he stands there, she still holds on to the crushed plans. We don't know what her vision of Israel restored looked like with Jesus ruling. We don't know what her hopes were for her own life in that kingdom, what that would have looked like, her proximity to Jesus and the good things of it. But it sure didn't include his death. And yet, until he says her name, she remains caught in that broken vision. The male disciples are similar. They're tucked away in a locked home somewhere for fear they'll be rounded up as you are the disciples of that so-called Christ. And then they have reliable reports of a moved stone. Angels announcing his rising. Peter and John go and they see it with their own eyes. Carry the news back. And then Mary Magdalene comes after this, claiming to have seen and touched him, and yet they stay hidden away. 
Because we hear later in the account that when Jesus comes to them, they are behind locked doors. They don't believe. They think the women are delusional. It can't be true because the Messiah wasn't supposed to die. He was supposed to set up an eternal kingdom. He was supposed to reign forever. And their vision has been scandalized. We believed in you. We trusted in you. And you, you disappointed us. They probably wondered the same as Pilate at that point. What is truth? You claim to speak truth. What is truth? And they can't believe the resurrection because they can't let go of their own dreams. They can't let go of their own vision of how it was supposed to be. They had plans. They had plans of sitting next to him with rule and authority. They even argued about who would be positioned where. And so these rumors of resurrection just mock their hopes. And death seems even stronger. And then we have the enemies. The guards, the Jewish leaders. Matthew tells us they simply refuse to accept this rising. So on Pilate's orders, they had sealed that stone and placed a guard making it secure as possible. And their conclusion is fine. If God has sent angels to take Jesus, fine. So his body's gone. If God decided it to open it with an earthquake and proclaim his defeat of death, that need not compel them to change their vision of Israel. God can do what he wants to do over there. We are in control here. God can do what he wants over on some other continent. As long as we're in control here. God can do what he wants in that corner, in that corner. God can do what he wants with those people and those people. As long as we're in control here. It's astonishing, really. They're so committed to their own plans. They're so committed to their own narrative that they'll risk embarrassment. They'll, they'll lie. They'll say the disciples came and duped them. So, ah, we were incompetent. We couldn't, we couldn't even keep a body safe. Those disciples, they're wily. So they'll risk embarrassment and shame. in order to deny the truth. And later, they'll continue to claim that this, the disciples are, are suffering disillusionment or they're, they're dying just to defend a lie. But this is all, each of these, this is all the human way. Lest we feel superior, lest we think, oh, we would, we would be very different to those shaken disciples or to the hard-hearted Jewish leaders or the soldiers, we should probably bring to mind our own tendency to cling to fantasy visions of the good life, your good life, my good life, how we each would prefer things to be. Our false accounts of meaning 
how we cling stubbornly to just what we want, what we prefer the world to be like. Said another way, we, we might ask how much we believe in the resurrection and the life and the life that flows from it. We should probably ask, especially today, why is, why is life, why is the resurrection life so often taken as death? Why is it that the resurrection life feels, even to us, so often like dying, like a death, like our death? Why should it be that complete gift, full grace, empowering grace, comes to us in our minds as a burden? The aroma of life as the aroma of death. We need only look within and then extrapolate to the world. We're gathered here. You came this morning to remember that Jesus died. But being the very life of God, death couldn't hold him. He's, God is stronger than death. And so he passed through it. He passed through death. He passed through the judgment of sin. And he opened the way of life through himself for anyone who will follow him through faith in his sacrifice. And now we may follow him into life. And yet, we cling to the things that are perishing. Essentially, we are afraid. We are afraid that the way of life, that way that he's opened up, isn't as good as the stuff that is perishing. We're making a calculation. You live what you believe. So like the disciples, like the Jews, we've made plans for ourselves for this earthly life and how it ought to be and what we're convinced is best. And these plans just happen to include a lot of stuff that isn't part of life eternal. And quite simply, we don't trust that God will give us something better than what we have imagined. It is about trust. What do I trust? Do I trust God or do I trust what I have imagined, what I have constructed to be best? And more often than not, we trust our own imagination. And we fear the death of our vision of perfection. We fear the death of our happy life. And so the resurrection life of Jesus seems like death rather than life. Seems like bad news and loss instead of liberation Good news, freedom, strength, power, confidence. 
For example, we fear that less money in a very simple life will be less fulfilling than a life full of material comforts. How did we come to that? We fear that the joy and intimacy that God offers, the one from whom every good thing flows, intimacy and closeness with him isn't as good as sex. A bodily pleasure or having a spouse or being accepted by some group. Or we think that the perfect job that we're chasing has to be more fulfilling than a life of moment-by-moment dependence on the Spirit here in the job that we have. If only that situation, if I could have that, then peace, then life. The death and resurrection of Jesus, it should show us something. The corrective truth, the corrective, all those little dreams and visions with ourselves at the center of everything are meant to die. They're supposed to die on the cross with Jesus. Here's an image for you. It's a biblical image. I hope you'll take it. In the grave with him, this actually came up last night, in the grave with him, those manufactured visions of which we're the creators, those visions are like a seed that germinates. It it germinates only in the death of Jesus, only there, because there's something good in them. There is something good. There's a longing in the middle of each of those dreams. It's good. Every good and perfect thing is part of life eternal. And like a seed in the ground, that in order for it to to germinate and sprout must be crushed, must be broken, It's the crushing that allows that actual good plant to burst into life. The goodness that was part of your dream comes to life in the death of Jesus when it's there with him, when it's given over to him. The resurrection calls us to bring all of ourselves into his death so that the false visions, the false versions can crack, can slough off, can fall away and remain inert and dead. And rising with Christ, we can accept his vision of life for us, his plan for us, his design for us, built right into us. And we can accept contentment. We can accept poverty. We can accept joy. We can accept suffering, aloneness, and fellowship. Whatever comes to us. We can accept it all because he guarantees that he will be with us on this way of resurrection life. And so from a death, from his death, from our death, 
comes life in its fullness. For us now, for us today, life in its fullness. If you know you've been walking in a kind of half-life, a kind of twilight, rather than in the light, why not let your hands slip from what is dying? The thing that you are clinging to, as Mary tried to cling to her old vision of Jesus, and he says, don't cling to me. Not as you wanted me. I've not yet ascended. I've not yet given you life in its fullness but unless you let go of me and that plan and that vision, it can't be yours. I must ascend to my Father and give you my spirit and a life you never dreamed and a life you could never imagine, Mary. And she obeys. She trusts him because she goes. She goes and tells Trust him. Receive his love. Baptism, which we are coming to now. Baptism signifies, that is, it visibly points to this entry into resurrection life. Something we can see. It teaches us about what's happening invisibly and spiritually. It's the starting line. Today, Autumn Robledo and Seraphim Hancock will launch forward into this way of life that Christ has opened up through his death and his resurrection. And this baptismal, this baptismal washing, it comes with a guarantee of empowering grace. That's what's being promised. That's what Jesus communicates is, is his gift empowering grace to become oriented to the life that Christ is giving. Faith must be activated. The, the, the child, the person baptized, must in some way stretch out in faith and trust. What is being communicated here is his promise to give empowering grace. God, God has plans that include these young ones. And those, those will be far more significant. Those will be far more shaping, far more glorious than any vision they could imagine or parents you could imagine for them. The Lord knows eternal life. And he knows how he has suited these two for that life. He knows how he has suited you for that life. So if they entrust themselves to his care, he will guide them in the way that leads to life. So we say Christ is risen today. Let's leave the stuff that's dying in the grave. Let's accept the grace that comes from the cross. Let's accept the grace guaranteed by the resurrection. We are forgiven. Let us walk in newness of life. Lord, we need your grace. We need your empowerment for this. You know the stubbornness of our hearts. You know our, our tendency to hold fast and cling to those visions that are actually our destruction. Lord, in your gracious kindness, give power, give grace to re 
for us to release those things and leave them behind and trust you with everything. In Jesus' name, amen.